Hey, good morning, church. Welcome to this snowy day in Revelstoke. It's great to be here. And uh, it's been a while since we've been in Revelstoke, but it's great to be great to be here. It's definitely a different experience than we're used to. But uh, nonetheless, that doesn't mean that our experience with God is any different because of what our circumstances are. Uh, so I want to just jump right into it. And uh, I believe that what God's wanting to say to us is God always gives us a timely word. God always speaks to us when we need to hear. And the key to it is actually being able to hear and receive. So I encourage you to take notes, take Write it down. We always remember it better if we write it down. And uh, we're going to have some verses up on the, on the screen. I'm going to read through them and then uh, have some thoughts to, to go along with that. So I want to read from Mark uh, 14 to 29, as well as Matthew 17, 14 to 20. And it's, the reason is for two parallel stories and seeing the differences between the two. So in as when they came back, to the other nine disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the scribes questioning and arguing with them. How many of us would agree that that sounds a little bit like today? Somebody. What, what are you discussing, he says. And he says, teacher, I brought, I brought my son and possessed with a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever he, it seizes him, intending to do harm, it throws him down. And he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes stiff. I told your disciples to drive him out, and they could not do it. Jesus replies, oh, unbelieving, faithless generation. How long shall I be with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring him to me. And I kind of think that Jesus is like, he almost got rather frustrated at that point. He's like, why... Why? Just hurry up. Get him over here. So they, when they brought him, and he, so bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When the demonic spirit saw him, immediately threw the boy into convulsion, falling to the ground, rolling around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening? Since childhood. The demon will often throw him into the fire and into water, intending to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help him. And I thought that was kind of an interesting point. Because further, Jesus says to him, you say to me, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes and trusts in me. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out with a desperate and piercing cry saying, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I think that's a key point in there. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering around them, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After screaming out and throwing him into a terrible convulsion, it came out. The boy looked much like a corpse <laughs> that many in the spectators thought he was dead, but Jesus picks him up and says he's not dead. But what's interesting is afterwards, the disciples came back and said to him privately, why were you unable to drive him out? Why were you unable, why, why, sorry, why were we unable to drive him out? Because you've got to remember, the disciples had already seen great miracles. They had actually already done 
this work before, and yet they weren't able to do that there. And I want to read again in, in Matthew 17 as a, as a parallel. And in verse 19, 17 and 19, it says, The disciples came to Jesus privately and asked, Why could we not drive him out? And Jesus says, Because of your little faith, your lack of trust and confidence in the power of God. And then I think Jesus gets a little bit sarcastic. Just, just a little bit. Because when he says, because of your little faith, then he follows it up and he says, for I assure you that if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, which a mustard seed is very, very small, you could say to this mountain, be removed, be cast into the sea, and not doubt in your heart, but believe that it'll happen, and you'll have it. So he's almost doing a play on words as he's saying, you have little faith, but it actually isn't the size of the faith. Because when a mustard seed is this small, that much faith can move a mountain. It surely can deliver a, uh, deliver a boy that's been demon-possessed. It can do more than what the disciples thought that it could do. But a few things that I wanted to, put, that I wanted to pick out of that. One is, if you can... And I think that it could be rephrased, are you, are you willing to? Because our view of God is defined by how, our relationship with, with God is defined with how we view God. Because if we have an improper view of God, then we're not willing, we're not able to see what God can do. Are we children of God? Yes. Says so in John three, First John three, verse one. Why would a loving parent withhold good things from their kids? It's a valid question. But if we are children of God, then why would we doubt that God would give us good things? Our attitude then changes to one of boldness and expectation because we know who we are and who God is. And I thought about going, thought about it, and I was like it really comes down to an identity crisis. Because for most people, maybe not all, but I know a lot of people, that the common perception of God is he's the big guy in the sky with the big stick and the lightning bolt ready to strike whoever is out of line. And when you have that view of God, when you have that view of who could be giving you something, you're not inclined to ask for something that you don't expect to get because you think that you have to toe the line you have to do all the things right and even then it might not be good enough and then oh no god might strike me or he's not going to give me anything good but that's not what it says but it's also how big is your god you know god created the heavens and the earth he's the beginning and the end. He never gets tired. He doesn't, he has no limitations. The only limitation is what we put on him. And when we create a limitation, then we say, oh, if God can do it, we actually are doubting that he is great enough to come through. What I thought was the most interesting was this, when the man says, I, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's when I got thinking about when, God's, when Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, which is so, so tiny, he was saying, 
it doesn't matter how much faith you have because we all were given the measure of faith. Romans 12, 3 says we all, we're all given the same measure of faith. We have the same amount. So then it can't be that we need more faith. It can't mean, yeah, although we can exercise it, although we can grow our faith and be stronger, what the defining point is the unbelief, the doubt that enters into our heart because we aren't really sure, will God come through with what he said? It says in James 1, 6 to 8, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blowing and tossed by the wind. And then here's the clincher. That person should not expect to see, receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and, un, and unstable in all they do. Many times through the Bible, when people were coming to him asking for something and they weren't sure if they could get it or not, Jesus would always say, just believe or don't doubt or fear not. Why did he say that? Because he knew that what was the important part was not the size of their faith because he knew they only needed this much of the faith, but they needed to get rid of all of the doubt. The most paralyzing statement that has ever been said, and it started in Genesis 3. Did God really say? Did God really say that you could have that? Did God really say that he would do that? Did God really say... You fill in the blank. And you got to remember, in Genesis 3, the beginning of the Bible, the only two people on planet Earth were Adam and Eve in a relationship with God. There was nobody else. There was no need. There was no issue. There was nothing. And then that question arose. There was no distraction. There was nothing that we have to deal with right now at that moment, and yet they still doubted God. In an environment with absolute access to God, doubt was, the only, was still able to be introduced. Faith only the size of a mustard seed. We've all been given the same amount of faith. We would probably agree that Jesus had the most faith if we were to do a measurement, right? If we were to do a measurement, Jesus probably had the most faith. But when he was on the earth, you know that he was actually still unable to perform miracles in certain places. He was still limited, and it says in Mark 6 verse 5, because of their unbelief. He was in, this, he was in the city that he grew up in, People knew what he could do. They had seen it. And yet he couldn't perform any miracles because of the unbelief. So it's not that you need more faith. You just need less unbelief. You need less doubt. Doubting that, hey, will God come through? Will God actually do what he says? The Bible says God is not a man that he can lie. His word never changes. Because if God's word changes, then he would be considered a liar, then nobody could trust him. But our unbelief is rooted in our view of God, which affects how we see ourselves. Because if you don't have a view, if your view of God is that he's this big guy in the sky with the lightning rod, you're not really going to come confidently to him to ask for something. I walk into my parents' house 
I don't live there. I have my own house. I have my own wife. I have my own kid. I have my own food. It's because my wife goes and buys the food because I don't go shopping. But when I walk into my parents' house, it's free game. Why? Because I know who I am in that environment. I know that when I walk in there, I am the child of that father. Therefore, everything that is there, he doesn't withhold from me. Now, if I eat the wrong chips, it's a different story. But the point remains that I walk confidently in there. I don't walk in the servant's entrance, as it were. I walk in straight through the front door, and I know what is mine, and I know what I can ask for, and I know that he is going to give it to me. Why wouldn't we have that same confidence with our Heavenly Father? The other thing that's interesting in the verse is when Jesus tells us how to pray. See, because Jesus already, God always knows what we need. We don't need to remind him. In case you're wondering, God knows everything. Matthew 6, 8, he, he already knows. He already knows everything that we need. So when you go and you keep telling him, he's like, yeah, okay, let's, let's get past that. We already know that. So don't be like them praying as they do, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And he actually knows a lot of stuff that you need that you don't think you need, but he already knows that you need it, and he's just waiting for you to figure out that you actually need it. And most of that is relying on him. Instead of talking to God about the problem, talk to the problem. See, because I could talk all day about an employee of mine, that I want them to do something. I could keep talking, you know, that guy, yeah, he really needs to go do this task, and then he needs to go and do this task, and I wish he would do that. And I could talk all day long about that employee and say, hey, you know, talk to my coworker, or talk, but not actually talk to that specific person. As good intentions as they may have to do what I want them to do, if they don't actually hear me tell them what I want them to do, they are not going to do it because, unfortunately, my employees are not mind readers. It'd be great if they were, but they're not. But you have to talk directly to it. Death and life are controlled by our words. We bear the consequences of our words. But we actually have to talk to it. We're not going to God complaining. We're not going to God talking about the problem. He doesn't care. He already knows. What he wants you to do is use the authority that he's given you to speak to that problem, to take control over it, and see it changed. And the last note, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. In, in some manuscripts, it's, it wasn't in there, but the key point is that God's already given us everything we need. In 2 Peter 1, verse 3, it says, For his divine power has bestowed on us absolutely everything necessary for a dynamic spiritual life and godliness through true and personal knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So if God's already given us everything, if we believe his word, it says he's already given us everything, then the blockage is actually not God, it's us. The blockage is not, will he come through? 
because we've already established that he is a good God and he wants to. The issue is being able to receive it. Because we're relying on what we can do rather than what God can do. And as we're in this time of prayer and fasting, we're not trying to become super Christians. We're not trying to elevate ourselves to some some super status. Because remember, Jesus was not able to do miracles. Jesus himself was not able to do miracles in a place when he would have, by all accounts, had the most faith. It had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with getting rid of the blockages in the way. And one of those is the reliance on ourselves instead of reliance on God. If we're relying on ourselves, there's only so much we can do, and then we tap out. We're, that's it. We're done. But it's when we rely on God. When we, get, when we command our body to line up and go, hey, no. I'm telling you what to do, not you telling me what to do. And that's the point of fasting. So really, why, why, why does it all matter? Why, why does all of this matter? Because the quality of our relationship with God determines how we view God, which determines the outcome in our life. It influences how we pray. If we know that God is not withholding stuff from us, not withholding good things from us, then we're going to be willing and able to ask. We come boldly there to the throne room of God and say, this is what we need. Because even though God already knows it, we can't, we can't do anymore, we can't perform anymore, we can't reach this higher level because it's not what matters. Before you were born, God already knew who you were. Before you were born, God had already paid the price for every wrong thing you were going to do. He already covered all of that. So why would we think that we could do anything that could possibly get us beyond that and to a point where we would be that much better off? God goes, that's, that's, not, that's not the point. He goes, I want you to simply receive what I've already done and then speak it into existence. He doesn't want us to just come to him and complain about it. His whole intention was, when we go back into that verse in, in Matthew, God didn't, Jesus didn't talk to God and say, hey God, can you please get rid of this demonic spirit? He turned around and said, spirit, out. That's what he did. And that is the example that we follow. So I want to leave you with a few few things about identity because that's really what it comes down to. When we have the proper view of God, our identity is solved. God is the beginning of the end. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. You know, he named all of the stars. We couldn't even c figure out a name for the longest time for our daughter. And I think we only had, you know, 10 or 15 names to choose from. Maybe more, but We'll say that money. God can count the hairs on your head. He's never late. 
He's always on time. He's the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He never gets tired. He never is distant. He's never unavailable. That's the same God that we come to with our request. And we say, God, we know you're more than enough. We know. We can say, because of that, once we have that identity sorted, once we know who God is, then we know who we are. And really, it's just reading the Bible and go reminding ourselves of who he said we are. He said we're more than conquerors. Greater than he that is in me than he that is in the world. I walk by faith and not what I see. I can tell the mountain be moved. I have divine health. When I walk through valleys of darkness, when I walk through things that I don't know if I'm going to get out of, it doesn't matter because God is with me. God's already supplied all my needs according to his riches. I am a child of the most high God. You know, God writes his name, your name, on his hand. He's named all the stars. He counts the hairs on your head, and yet he still has room on his hand for your name. We don't fear the terror at night or the pestilence by day. No weapon that's created that can attack and succeed. We are the head and not the tail. We're the lender, we're not the borrower. God sets a table before us in the middle of our enemies. We're, when everything else looks like it's coming crashing down, he's like, hold on. Let's sit down and have a meal. In the middle of the battlefield, he says, hold on. Let's sit down and have a meal. Why? Because he knows what the end result already is. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. When we understand the identity of what God is to us, that is what changes how we view ourselves and then how we view our relationship with God determines how we will act in this world. Because I would rather have the power of God behind me and walk that out than to be constantly wondering, how am I going to make it through this? Because when we have the power of God in our lives, we should be walking different than those around us in the world. Because you got to remember, in that verse, the disciples genuinely were confused as to why they could not cast out the demon. Because they had already done it. This wasn't a new thing. This wasn't a new type of thing that they were, oh, we, sorry, well, that wasn't in the handbook. We don't know how to do this one. They'd already done it. And so when they couldn't do it, they were perplexed because they thought, well, we'd already done it. What, what changed? They'd seen a little bit of short-term memory probably because they'd seen God feed 5,000, feed 4,000, walk on water. They'd seen all of it. And then they had done it as well. And yet, they were perplexed why they couldn't. And Jesus says, it's not the size of your faith, it's the size of your doubt. So I encourage you this week, look at the things that you're facing. Look at the, the things that are coming up. Look at how 
you are viewing them in light of how are you viewing God. And from how you view God, what is your view of yourself and your circumstance? And when we get that line, when we understand that principle, then I think we're going to see some amazing change in our lives because we've now put God in the right order of our life. We've got the correct hierarchy, as it were, of understanding the basic principles that God put in place so that we could live for the life that we wanted to live. I'm going to turn the service back to Pastor Josiah.